0: To
1: do it. <laughs> what does literature sound like? What stories will we hear if we listen to the archive? Welcome to the Spoken Web Podcast stories about how literature sounds. My name is Hannah McGregor. And my name is Catherine McLeod. And each month, we'll be
2: bringing you different stories that explore the intersections of sound, poetry, literature, and history created by scholars, poets, students, and artists from across Canada.
1: We have a very special episode for you this month. We're doing a crossover with friend of the podcast, Linda Mora. I call her friend of the podcast because she's friend of ours, Catherine. She is. Uh,
2: Linda Mora is a Canadian literature scholar. Uh, She does research on uh, CanLit and archives. And the episode that we've chosen for this crossover episode is an early episode from her podcast called Getting Lit with Linda, the Canadian Literature Podcast. And it's an episode that really does a deep dive into a new work of Canadian literature. She does a deep dive into the book Magnetic Equator, a book of poetry by the Montreal-based poet Kai Kello. And on this podcast, uh, more recently, she's been speaking with the authors and doing interviews with them, and getting lit with Linda has become more live. Uh, But here, we really see her and hear her diving into the work itself and really listening to it, listening to the book and listening to the sound of the language. Uh, When I spoke to Linda about which episode we might choose for this podcast, she recommended we take a listen to this one, and I'm really glad that she did because it really is an episode that's immersed in sound, not only uh, in the sounds of Kai Kello's book, but also in Linda Mora's sonic world. And uh, the episode actually starts with uh, some terrific sounds of Linda's coffee maker.
1: <laughs> it does. And also with the gorgeous sound of Linda's voice. I was really struck when you pointed out to me, Catherine, that this, that, Getting Lit with Linda started as a pandemic project. So the podcast started in 2020. As you said, it has grown and developed into conversations with other with authors about their books, but I really think you hear in this episode that sense of the role that podcasts played for so many of us in the pandemic of creating these threads of connection from our spaces of isolation. You can hear how embedded Linda is in the domestic space from which she's speaking and she invites you into the sonic landscape of that space with this kind of intimacy and this closeness for you know down to everything from the 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 sound of the coffee maker to the sound of her voice, her proximity to the microphone, it feels so intimate, almost cozy and then sets you up so beautifully to really come with her into this collection of poetry and into the kinds of um, sonic landscapes that Kai Kello is also navigating.
2: Yes, I think that Linda would be terrific on the radio.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> I'm saying it on record right here now. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's have a listen to this crossover episode, an episode of Linda Mora's podcast, Getting Lit- With Linda, the Canadian Literature Podcast.
1: And this is Season 2, Episode 7, The Languages and Sounds That Are Home, Kai Kello's Magnetic Equator.
0: Lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes... With them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the host and writer of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm sipping an espresso this morning, one that was made from my father's old espresso machine. It's a fairly unwieldy, almost Victorian era piece of equipment that whistles and groans as it produces my morning coffee. If you've been following me on Twitter, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's no reason to use or even to love this particular machine. I'm an espresso aficionado, and therefore I have several contemporary machines from which I could choose. But I'm really partial to this one, because its dialect and its rhythms, however clunky they may seem to others, remind me of when my Italian father was still alive. And he loved this machine. And he loved his espresso so I do too. By the way, in case you want to know, I take my espresso with a teaspoon of raw sugar and a hint of cinnamon. The machine used to take up a lot of space on his kitchen counter, the very house I also grew up in, although that house is gone now too. Still, the morning espresso wasn't something we just shared. It provided us with a ritual, a context, meaning, tacit understanding, so what i have now is the language of this machine the memories it evokes as it grinds and moans and the comfort it offers me this story does actually have something to do with today's poet kai kello which i'll return to by the end i'm happy to let you know that i have an audio clip by kello too today i've actually met him in person at a writer's event in montreal quebec I had already heard about his work and I was sufficiently impressed by him as a person to invite him on the spot to come and speak to my students at Bishop's University. He agreed. And so he came as part of this inaugural event for a student writing weekend in the Eastern Townships, what we were calling Sweet, at which time he performed before about 60 students and faculty members. Now, I often have no idea what writers will be like when I invite them to the campus. I do love good writers, of course, but that doesn't mean I know what to expect for events for the Morris House Reading Series. That's a literary program I've coordinated for over 14 years. I've even learned to be rather cautiously optimistic about which writers I invite because some past experiences were, uh, well, to put it gently, underwhelming. Not all writers feel comfortable presenting their work in public venues. It simply requires a different skill set than, say, writing poetry or a novel in private. The other thing is, well, Lenoxville has its own culture. It's a fairly English-speaking community in a French-speaking city, in a French-speaking province, and Lenoxville is a borough of Sherbrooke. So I never know what I can expect on that side of things either. I just hope I've made the right choice and that everyone's happy. So, back to Kello in Lenoxville. He apparently meandered about the town before the event and found himself near the train tracks just off the campus. And so, at the event proper, he held up a discarded, misshapen steel peg that he had found nearby the tracks. It was bent in a way that it looked like the letter J. And then he riffed off that J in ways that were completely astounding. The students were mesmerized. The very instant Kello completed his performance, the students were drawn up and out of their seats. They leapt up together as one and erupted into sustained applause. Kello was the point toward which they were all magnetically drawn. I've never seen anything like it. Now, anyone who has seen him perform the alphabet, yes, you did hear that right, by the way, the alphabet, will have a very good idea of what I'm talking about. If you're out there wondering what I mean by that, I've included a link to one of his performances in the show notes. One of the comments on that page suggests that this particular video is dope, and it really is pretty lit. The moment documents the fact that Kello is, among other things, a practitioner of sound poetry. He's referred to himself as, quote, a word sound systematizer, an adaptation of the expression word sound power that comes from Jamaican dub poetry. Sound poetry relies upon the phonetic aspects of human speech, its acoustic properties, and it enjoys these lexical distortions and contortions that draw attention to the sounds of language rather than its meaning. It can at times take on sing song like properties, sometimes sounding rather musical, think of um, nursery rhymes, but without the recognizable diction. And it certainly makes for a rather rhythmical and fascinating performance. In terms of the Canadian poets, the most famous of these include BP Nickel, Bill Bissett, and Steve McCaffrey. Now I know I'm oversimplifying a rather vast body of work. I just want to allude to it briefly because Kello is one of its practitioners, although it's not the focus of my discussion today. Why? Because if we narrow our view to just this aspect of Kello's literary production, we'll greatly limit our understanding of his accomplishments and of his extraordinary talent and range. Kello writes poetry and prose, and he's already published three books of poetry, one novel and one collection of short stories. Indeed, he sees these genres as informing each other, Even so, it's not just the range of his output, but the real quality of it too, and in all genres. I've said it in previous episodes that I don't really allow awards to determine what I think about works of literature, but I do think in this case the sheer number of awards that Kello's work has attracted are indeed merited. His novel Accordion was shortlisted for the Amazon First Novel Award and his short story collection Dominoes at the Crossroads won or was shortlisted for so many, including the Grand Prix de Livre de Montréal and the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Just stop counting. The book I'm focusing on today, however, is Magnetic Equator. In case you're interested, it did actually win the 2020 Griffin Poetry Prize, but that's not why I chose it. You'll see why in a moment. Magnetic Equator is divided into 10 parts, which draw upon elements of Kello's life. It's at least semi-autobiographical. He was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, moved to Calgary where he spent his adolescence, and in adulthood relocated to Montreal, Quebec, where he's lived since 1998. But the collection doesn't begin with Vancouver. It reaches back to his ancestral roots, to Guyana, South America, the place from which his maternal grandparents emigrated. This shifting of geographical contexts matters, generally, of course, but also specifically when we look at this collection. The multiplicity and complexity of geographical contexts, their respective cultures, at turns, impress and oppress their subjects. How much we take on the colors of our context that then intermingle when we relocate and migrate, creating new palettes, new hues and tones. It means, of course, that questions of belonging also become more complicated, less easily resolved, and sometimes rendering one's sense of place in more precarious ways that highlights one's vulnerability. As one might expect, the cultural influences of Guyana mark Kello's upbringing, so that, as he says in an interview with CBC Books, he remembers how much it affected so many facets of his life. How his grandparents in Canada, for example, prepared Guyanese meals. How, quote, there were pictures and maps of Guyana. There were books by Guyanese authors. Guyana was something that was discussed. It was real. It was an important presence, End quote. Within the collection, he thus speaks about being, quote, inside a narration contrived to read like nonfiction, how one word emigrates from another's vowels, end quote. He draws attention to the connection and intersections between people and language, their lineages and migratory patterns, how we are birthed, not only through biology, but also through inherited narratives and stories. The title is in part a reference to the Equator, above which Guyana is only marginally north. If you're thinking right about now that the title Magnetic Equator is therefore somehow related to Guyana's proximity toward the Equator, you'd be right. Most of you will know about the Earth's magnetic field lines, the North Magnetic Pole and the South Magnetic Pole, until the north end of the compass will point downward in the Northern Hemisphere that's called positive dip when it points upward in the southern hemisphere that's called negative dip however when the locus of points have zero dip it's called the magnetic equator guyana the title is suggestive therefore that pull toward the equator toward guyana but metaphorically toward finding one's cultural lineage or one's sense of home where the gravitational pull is zero. You won't be pulled in any direction when you're at home. But how do you find home when you've been displaced or when its physical counterparts and markers have been moved or removed? In part, Kello is reimagining Guyana as one source of his identity, and more broadly speaking, to apprehend those matrices that offer a deeper, richer understanding of identities because as he observes an interview, quote, you had all these different cultural groups that came to Guyana and then mixed there, end quote. In an interview about this particular collection, Kello has said that he sees the multifaceted, complex language of the text itself as offering a kind of context, language as landscape. He remarks on its playfulness, its vastness, a language that holds a variety of different registers at the same time from more formal English to slang to bits of Patois into French. The collection is above all else about language that's been marked by diaspora, occasioned by different contexts and experiences, by different cultural lineages and identities. He charts family histories, personal and political, and geography to show how the density of times past acts on and produces who we are quote, the assemblages of others who are you, a being made of beings. In reading this part, I immediately thought of my past episode on Madeline Tian and the means by which our bodies are an accumulation of memory, familial, cultural, and political. The interweaving, however, goes beyond that. He even remarks on how nocturnal insects intertwine with, quote, our breathing Continuous and shifting, supple, they never stiffen into strict meter. End quote. Of course, this is a reflexive remark that has a bearing on the shape of poetry that also never stiffens into strict meter, but rather is fluid, elusive, and in flux. The first section is a clear and direct reference to the country. The opening section, in fact, is titled Kayator Falls, a direct reference to the tallest single drop waterfall. 226 meters or 741 feet high. That's about four times higher than Niagara Falls if you want a point of comparison in Canada or the United States. Located in Kytor National Park and a section of the Amazon rainforest, it's clearly also related to Kello by virtue of his first name. There is a fascinating link to be made here between person and place, between Kello and Guyana proper. In the first few poems of the second section titled "Mantra of No Return," Kello explores the legacies of slavery and of the human cargo carried in ships across the Atlantic, using the holds of these ships as a starting point for larger considerations as a kind of aside. It made me think of Zong that's the work of another poet whose poetry I absolutely love emner Beze philip, and I'll probably dedicate an entire episode to her in the future, so he observes. The world is itself a cargo carried in the hold of this verse. He suggests here how his verse is both a means of conveyance and a means of communication, and his subject not just Guyana but the globe. His poetry is both indictment and tribute, both memory and record, both personal and collective. The next section, titled High School Fever, is poignant, tracing his adolescence experienced in the Canadian prairies and the misery of the boy who contemplated suicide in the backseat of a car, quote, breathing carbon monoxide as exodus, quote. He reminds us that however much we may be in a place, we are not necessarily of it, no matter how long we might live there. This is a period that involves Desert Storm and the Oka Crisis and Apartheid and Dance Me Outside and Yasser Arafat. It's a time of confusion and anger and experimentation, a time that is interspersed with racial, social, and political injustices. But it's also a time when the poet becomes attentive to racial inequities and injustices, keenly listening to, quote, their black mouths that opened over my ears," End quote. In a section after this titled Zero, strategically located in the center of the collection, the poet has clearly made his way to Montreal with its babble of voices, the languages spilling out the summer windows, although the section really takes a wider view, and not just a perspective that is personal, embracing the totality of experience from British Columbia to Calgary, Montreal. No, the view is even wider than that. Here's Kello reading a small part from this section. The Athabasca glacier recedes into prehistory, dinosaur ice trickling into time's crystalline wink, reception weakening the further we, from the city, clear static between stations. Listening to the mellifluous voice of Kello is part of the pleasure, I think. The Athabasca Glacier is part of the Columbian ice field, located in the Rockies, and this is therefore an invitation for us to consider a much wider perspective, one that's expansive, that invites us to go back in time so that we may assume a broader view. The fact that this section is titled Zero is pertinent, in view of the title of the collection. Remember, when the locus of points have zero dip, we're at the magnetic equator. But how do we arrive there? How do we produce the unity of worlds, to quote the title of the last section of this book? How does Kello arrive there when there are multiple storylines and histories and contexts, geographical and otherwise? In the case of this collection, through his own language, the magnetic center point. And more broadly, through a language that is textured, that resonates and nudges at the conscious and unconscious mind, that provides us with story, history, lineage, context, a sense of belonging even in physical displacement, our magnetic equator, even if it does just happen to be, in my case, an old clunky espresso machine that whispers about a life and a memory that remain a part of who I am. This is the takeaway section of the episode. I want to recommend to you today a biography I've been reading. It's about novelist Timothy Finley, and it's titled Tiff by Cheryl Grace. I've been reading several biographies of late because of my own research to write the biography of Jane Rule. So the first thing that I can tell you is that this book is beautifully researched and written. A good biography needs to tell a well-researched story. And so the second part of that equation, the story, also needs to be well crafted, as it is in this case. The story is well told because Grace clearly cared about her subject, not just about Finley's work and contributions as a writer, although those are also foregrounded. She weaves in these great details about Finley's life, his real love for the environment, his engagement with human rights, and his own personal struggles with depression, which consistently held my attention. Hope... Against despair was one of his mottos, and it's one that I've personally been carrying around with me ever since I read it. Generally, Grace has created this evocative portrait of Timothy Finley, a writer who's left a legacy in literature in Canada. That's it for today's episode. Please join me in two weeks' time when I speak about Lorena Gale's Je Me Souviens. Thanks for joining me. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.
2: The Spoken Web Podcast is a monthly podcast produced by the Spoken Web team as part of distributing the audio collected from and created using Canadian literary archival recordings found
1: at universities across Canada. This month, we've featured episode seven from season two of Getting Lit with Linda, written and hosted by Linda Mora and co-produced by Marco Timpano. Our supervising producer is Maya Harris. Our sound designer is James Healy. And our transcription is done by Zoe Mix. To find out more about Spoken Web, visit
2: spokenweb.ca and subscribe to Spoken Web Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. If you love us, let us know. Rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or say hi on our social media at Spoken Web Canada. Stay tuned to your podcast feed later this month for shortcuts with me, Catherine McLeod. Short stories about how literature sounds.